0: This week, Judge Wiles sets 10-day trial for Honeywell claim estimation. Judge Dorsey expects rule from bench on Malincrot preliminary injunction motion halting government actions. Citibank says human error caused bungled payments to Revlon lenders. And as always, updates from Puerto Rico.
1: Hello and welcome to the Reorg podcast where we bring you the latest top developments in high yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy. I'm Connor Skelton. Later, we'll hear a replay of our movie theater webinar, which we hosted on August 30th. It is now Sunday, November 22nd. Judge Michael Wiles presided over a hearing Wednesday on the Garrett Motion Debtor's Motion to establish estimation procedures for Honeywell International's disputed asbestos indemnification and tax matters claims. Judge Wiles also heard argument on Honeywell's motion to dismiss the Garrett Motion Debtor's Lawsuit to invalidate up to $5 billion in asbestos indemnification obligations that stem from the same agreements. Ultimately, Judge Wiles set a 10 day trial to be scheduled in February 2021 to estimate all aspects of Honeywell's claim. Judge Wiles also reserved decision on the motion to dismiss, noting that he would dismiss, quote, at least certain of the debtor's claims, including claims against Honeywell for breach of fiduciary duty and intentional wrongdoing, without prejudice to Garrett repleting those claims. Judge Wiles stated that he would issue a bench ruling as quickly as possible. The hearing followed another preemptive strike by Garrett against the alternative plan proposed by Centerbridge, Oaktree, Honeywell International, and the Jones Day Majority Shareholder Group. On Monday, the debtors had initiated an adversary proceeding to disallow senior noteholders' claims for payment of a make whole premium. Garrett and stocking horse bidder KPS Capital also objected to the alternative plan sponsors' motion to present their standalone reorganization plan to creditors and shareholders simultaneously with the debtors' anticipated sale plan arguing that no cause exists to create a, quote, separate lane for the alternative plan outside of the debtor's court-approved bidding procedures. Also last week, the Office of the U.S. Trustee appointed a three-member equity committee. Gibson Dunn, on behalf of the ad hoc group of first lien lenders in the Garrett motion cases, filed an amended Rule 2019 statement and a reservation of rights with respect to the alternative plan sponsor's motion to modify the debtor's exclusivity rights. The first lien group specifically takes issue with the Alternative Plan's failure to provide for payment of post-petition interest at the default rate in order to render first lien lenders unimpaired. Quote, because the debtors triggered a bankruptcy event of default when they commenced these cases, the first lien lenders are entitled to default interest under the express terms of the first lien credit agreement, the group maintains.
0: After two days of testimony and closing arguments Thursday, Judge John Dorsey said that he expects to make a bench ruling on Monday on the Malincrat debtor's motions for a preliminary injunction halting government actions against the company and private suits against non-debtor co-defendants. The debtor's motion was opposed by plaintiffs who have asserted $10 billion stemming from ACTAR antitrust claims as well as the lead plaintiff in a class action pending in the New Jersey District Court. Chris Harris of Latham & Watkins, counsel for the debtors, maintained in his closing argument that the preliminary injunction applied to the objecting plaintiffs and should be granted as requested. Allowing the objectors' suits to proceed would, quote, distract and burden the debtors at a critical time in the case, Harris argued. He reiterated that the parties' restructuring support agreement may, quote, seek to get out of the deal if they see that other claimants' actions are going forward. On Friday, Judge Dorsey entered a final cash collateral order after an uncontested hearing. Mallinckrodt had revised the proposed order to res- resolve objections and concerns raised by the Opioid Claimants Committee, or the OCC, as well as the Official Committee of Unsecured Creditors. Collins Peckhardt of Cooley, counsel to the UCC, told the court on Friday, quote, While we do believe this is a good settlement for the UCC, we certainly didn't get everything we wanted. Scott Greenberg of Gibson Dunn, speaking for the ad hoc First Lane Term Lender Group, said that his client did not oppose entry of the final cash collateral order, but quote, still does strongly oppose its treatment under the debtor's RSA, which would reinstate the term loans. Also last week, the ad hoc group of First City note disclosed total debt holdings of $594.2 million across Mallinckrodt's capital structure in a Rule 2019 statement.
1: Citibank and the defendants in Citi's lawsuit to claw back mistaken August eleventh transfers to Revlon's term lenders continue to spar ahead of a trial next month. The parties fleshed out their litigation positions in a joint pretrial order and competing versions of proposed findings of fact and conclusions of law filed Saturday, November 17th. The plaintiff's submission details the, quote, human error that caused the bungled payments from Citibank's own funds in Citi's capacity as administrative agent for Revlon's 2016 term loan. The defendants, investment managers for the term lenders, maintained that they believed the August 11th transfers were, quote, intentional paydowns of the term loans, critiquing Citibank for its, quote, unforeseeable and, quote, historically unprecedented mistake. The bench trial will kick off on December 9th before Judge Jesse Furman in the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of New York. The plaintiff seeks to claw back approximately $504.2 million in aggregate from the 10 defendants.
0: In a Thursday night EMA filing, the Puerto Rico Fiscal Agency and Financial Advisory Authority, or FAF announced that the Puerto Rico Aqueduct and Sewer Authority, or PRASA, and the Government Development Bank Debt Recovery Authority, or DRA, have reached an agreement in principle to resolve in full all obligations related to a $57.7 million loan between the public water utility and the defunct GDB providing for a full and final resolution of the loan obligations for a one-time cash payment from PRASA of $20.5 million plus mutual releases between the parties, according to the EMA filing. On Monday, Governor-elect Pedro Pierluisi pledged to move quickly on Puerto Rico's debt restructuring, but indicated that both the proposed Commonwealth Plan of Adjustment and the proposed Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority restructuring will have to be renegotiated because of the COVID-19 pandemic's impact on the economic and financial projections that served as the base for both proposed transactions. Puerto Rico's top fiscal officials outlined progress over the current four-year political term on a range of fronts, including debt restructuring, fiscal plan implementation, federal funding, financial reporting, taxes, and budgeting, as Commonwealth government transition hearings got underway in San Juan on Monday. AFAF Executive Director Omar Marrero acknowledged that the government's relationship with the Oversight Board has been, quote, awkward and marked by clashes over public policy issues, but asserted that the working relationship has also resulted in vastly improved financial transparency and budget discipline and an ongoing transformation of Puerto Rico's energy system. Marrero said that the COVID-19 pandemic remains a quote cloud of uncertainty over Puerto Rico's macroeconomic prospects as he renewed a call for Promesa Oversight Board to factor that both into future Commonwealth fiscal plans and proposed plans of adjustment. Marrero signaled that the incoming Pierluci administration could be tasked with drafting and submitting a revised proposed Commonwealth fiscal plan to the Oversight Board. At the 22nd public meeting, the Promesa Oversight Board unanimously voted to approve a resolution authorizing the, quote, immediate commencement of negotiations on a modified plan of adjustment with creditors and other parties under the mediation agreement.
1: Top red stories last week included Gulfport Energy enters Chapter 11 in Houston with restructuring support agreement, named alvarez marcells Ratchevich as CRO. Breaking, Guitar Center enters RSA to reduce nearly $800 million in debt through Chapter 11 filing, contemplates up to $165 million in new equity investment, $375 million dip financing, and TPC Group hires MOLIS as FA to address $70 million Apollo term loan due August 2021, company considering upsizing and refinancing term loan, possibly priming secured notes.
0: Next up, here's Jim from Houston with The Week Ahead.
2: Well, good morning, all. Welcome to what will be the shortest week ahead of the year, given the holidays and whatnot we have towards the end of the week. So without any further ado, Monday, November 23rd, second day hearing in CBL, confirmation hearing in Asina, omnibus hearing in Garrett Motion, plus hearings of other sorts in Malin, Croat, Neiman, and Diamond Offshore. Tuesday, November 24th, confirmation hearing in JCPenney and a fleet finance motion hearing in Hertz. Wednesday, omnibus hearing in PAC-D. Thursday and Friday, nothing scheduled on either the in or the out-of-court calendar. And that's it. As promised, shortest of the year. And just remember, Jamestown was there before Plymouth. And back to y'all in New York.
0: And next up, here's our movie theater webinar.
3: So good morning again. Uh, today we'll discuss how movie theaters can survive the rest of 2020 before blockbusters return next year. I'm Mark Fisher, Director of Credit Research for America's Core Credit by REORG. And joining me on today's webinar are Krishan Sutashana, the Distressed debt Analyst for America's Core Credit by REORG, Peter Washwitz, Head of Covenants by REORG, and Sean Daly, Distressed debt Legal Analyst for America's Core Credit. Please note that if you'd like to access this webinar again later, a replay with slides will be available on the Reorg Media page for our Reorg clients later today. Next slide, please. So we're going to discuss Cineworld, AMC Entertainment, Cinemark and Marcus. We all know what's been happening with movie theaters, COVID-19 forced worldwide shutdowns, theaters open late summer with lower than expected attendance, disappointing box office. Studios pushed out releases until next year, and we've seen a resurgence in cases uh, and or weak uh, near-term prospects. The movie theaters resulted in Cineworld, including its uh, regal cinemas, closing again. AMC AMC and Cinemark remain open, but cash burn is elevated. So, Krishan, for an agenda, Krishan and I will discuss cash burn, rent, and go through the company's capital structures. Peter will then discuss covenant considerations and show on bankruptcy considerations. Next slide, please. So here we present cash flow and liquidity for the companies. While the companies are either not operating or operating with very little revenue, it's important to look at monthly cash burn. We then compare cash burn to liquidity to see how long before companies run out of cash, assuming a prolonged non-operated environment. Cineworld uh, in estimating, Cineworld only presents six month results making estimating monthly cash burn during just the shutdown period difficult. What is shown here is cash burn spread out over a three month or six month period uh, to come up with a range of uh, potential monthly cash burn for the company. The result is consistent with what the company said in its its interim report for June 30th when presenting a downside scenario, which involves a second wave of COVID-19, which the company said would affect several of the the group's territories to the extent that further prolonged shutdowns are required, affecting the group's performance, which is what's happening now. FinWorld said it would require additional financing facilities to operate from early 2021, following the end of the RCF extension, and as you can see here, uh, we say, we show that the liquidity event would either be late 2020 or early 2021 based on, uh, based on liquidity and cash burn. Cinemark, given their strong liquidity from the recent convertible note offering, is in the best shape to withstand the prolonged downturn. Cash burn shown here, and Krishan is going to go discuss this a little bit more, includes minimal rent payments that companies have either not paid or negotiated deferrals. Something to keep in mind related to a potential debtor-in-possession loan sizing, if these companies are ultimately forced to restructure in court, this cash burn will likely continue into Chapter 11, and companies will like to have to plan for a prolonged downturn. Even if theater is fully open in January, uh, they'll have to bridge to summer blockbusters. Rent might actually increase in bankruptcy, which is something Sean will go into later. I also encourage everyone to visit our site under the analysis page for AMC, in which Krishan puts together a sensitivity model for monthly cash flow. Uh, Next slide, please. So these are the factors that affect um, companies' cash burn. Movie theaters have been more or less operating with no revenue, but due to a largely variable cost structure from the revenue sharing agreements they have with theaters, costs have also come down considerably. In addition, while theaters are shut, they can reduce labor, utilities, and other costs within the theater. Cinemark reported just a couple of million dollars within cost of goods, but that was due to sale food. The other level lever that the uh, they've been able to pull is on rent deferrals. Next slide, please. So, um, you know, Krishan going to go through the the rent. This breaks down the um, cash burn, what is associated with um, operations versus uh, core operations versus um, interest and uh, rent. And as you can see here, companies are. Um, currently paying a much lower rent than um, their leases normally would uh, require. And we show cash burn uh, in either, uh, in the current environment than the um, a scenario where they're gonna have to pay their, their full rent. Again, as you can see, cash burn uh, would, be, um, would be much higher. And um, this is something, again, that uh, you should keep in mind uh, these companies are forced to file for chapter 11, which Sean will go through um, later. So now I'd like to pass it over to uh, Krishan, who's going to go into more detail on the uh, on the rent.
4: Thanks, Mark. Um, yeah. Now moving on to to rent, uh, these companies were able to defer the majority of their Q two rent, and of the deferred rent, some has been forgiven, but the majority is slated to be repaid over time. Uh, so in the case of Cineworld, they were able to defer 130 million of their approximately 150 million Q2 rent until 2021. And of that portion, 30 to 40 million will be permanently forgiven and the remaining 90 to 100 million will be amortized on a monthly basis over the next two to three years um, starting in 2021. AMC has similar um, payment structure for deferrals. Um, They said the vast majority of their Q2 rent was deferred, um, most with repayment terms around 24 months, um, but some of which will be repaid over their corresponding remaining lease term. And as of early August, AMC said it was able to defer or abate rent for about 75% of its leases, um, and it expects 2021 rent to be lowered by at least $35 million. Um, And just as a reference point, uh, AMC paid about $240 million of rent in the first quarter. Um, last year, they paid you know close to $950 million of rent um, and about 10% of that portion was variable and 90% of that portion was fixed rent, um, just as a reference. Um, in the case of Cinemark, they deferred over $40 million of their $65 million Q2 lease expense. Um, which is a lower percentage of deferrals than both Cineworld and, and AMC. Um, and so, yeah, uh, moving on to the next slide now. Um, here we show a timeline of events for, for AMC, um, kind of illustrating some of their refinancing activities and uh, theater reopening activities since uh, they first closed US in March. And we put this as an illustrative exhibit here to capture some of the data in AMC's recent disclosures. They've been um, somewhat transparent in in their disclosures over the last, particularly over the last um, month and a half regarding the reopening of of theaters. Um, And and so we'll let you guys uh, kind of view this uh, maybe in detail in your own time. Um, But looking at the, the bottom left corner here, uh, we show how liquidity has trended uh, since those theaters first closed in March. And we know, you know the capital raise that AMC completed in April and the refinancing and exchange they completed in July um, to point out you know, how those have helped offset cash burn during um, the closure of theaters. Uh, and in the bottom right, we show illustrative uh, cash burn, as we've estimated by Reorg, um, based on ending cash balances that AMC has disclosed um, at various points in time, uh, and as you can see, cash burn appears to have, you know, increased, especially in July and August, um, as the company was incurring costs to reopen most of its U.S. theaters. Um, they've indicated in the past that it takes about two to three weeks on average to open. Uh, a theater in the u.s and they ramp up costs accordingly um in the month of august i think the the numbers skewed a little higher because there were a few delays um weekly delays in terms of opening theaters and ultimately they wanted to align the reopening uh of theaters with the release of tenet um which occurred on september 3rd um so so august as we can see, has a little higher cash burn just because of the ramp up of reopening costs there, um, without any actual, without much attendance, very little to no attendance in the month of August. Um, the company said that yeah, overall, its Q3 cash burn was higher than uh, it was expected to be higher than the Q2 cash burn um, due to reopening costs, um, the low attendance levels, particularly following the release of tenant, and as Mark alluded to earlier, the delay of, you know, scheduled movie releases into into next year. Um, So moving on to the next slide, um, we'll take a look at AMC's capital structure at a very high level, and um, Peter will later touch on, you know, some of the covenant considerations here. Um, But just looking at the the capital structure, following the issuance of the first lien notes in April and the refinancing exchange completed in July. AMC is about $5.5 billion of total debt, comprising $3.7 billion of first lien debt, uh, nearly $1.5 billion of second lien debt, uh, and nearly $300 million of unsecured debt. Uh, back in March, a week after they, they closed their U.S. theaters, they fully drew down on, the, on their revolving facilities, um, both the Odeon revolving credit facility and the AMC Entertainment revolving credit facility. And so there's no uh, liquidity under those facilities um, as of now. Um, and in October 20th, AK company said it had a cash balance of uh, 417.9 million as of September 30th. And subsequent to September 30th, they said they raised an additional approximately 51.9 million of proceeds through it's at the market common stock offering. So, you know, pro forma as of September 30th, cash balance was around 470 million um, before we consider any cash burn in October. Um, So moving on to the next slide, Mark will discuss the Cineworld capital structure.
3: Thanks, Krishan. Uh, So yes, so here's Cineworld's capital structure. It's largely consistent with with what was created at the time in the Regal Cinema purchase in 2018, plus the incremental loans and incremental uh, revolver that they've done recently. Uh, we haven't seen the agreements associated with the incremental facilities, but the company has said the incremental revolver of $110 million, um, expires end of this year. Uh, Pierre is going to discuss secured capacity later, but something to keep in mind that I wanted to point out are the uh, capital leases and other lease financing because of accounting um, standards. They don't really break this out um, anymore, so we do our best to try and um, Add uh, add these up. You can see the six hundred eighty million um, in the in the capital structure as of June thirtieth. Um, we break these out on the the next slide, and uh, it's unclear uh, now how many theaters Cinema World actually owns versus um, versus leases. But at the time of the Regal acquisition, Regal owned uh, fifty eight of its locations. It had ninety five million in cap leases, and last year Cinema World entered into sale leasebacks on an additional 35 of those theaters. So here you could see details of, of, those, of those transactions and how we came up with our um, our cap lease number. Uh, next slide is Cinemark's uh, capital structure. And the uh, company has been pretty active uh, this year in terms of adding debt, which has led to a uh, pretty good um, uh, liquidity situation. Um, just a, a note on Cinemark's um, organization. They have theaters in both the U.S. and, and Latin America and organized uh, as such. Uh, however, the debt is issued at an intermediate parent entity, which is also an operating subsidiary that owns the equity of the, the foreign subsidies as well, the subsidiaries as well. So all the value flows through uh, through these debts. The convertible notes are issued out of the TopCo parents or are structurally subordinate to the rest of the debt. Uh, both the notes and the credit facility, they are secured but the note security is limited to a select number of theaters, which you can find in our initiation report from a couple of a weeks ago on the site so now uh peter is gonna i'm gonna hand it off to peter who's gonna walk through uh covenant consideration so uh peter take away uh,
5: thanks mark um so i'm actually going to focus on amc cinemark and uh, marcus corp since they are um the, the biggest u.s publicly traded uh movie theater companies um as of uh, december 20, uh, december 2019 Uh, Marcus was the fourth biggest uh, theater company. Obviously, Regal uh, is is bigger than them, but uh, because Cineworld uh, and Regal are are a private company, um, we're not kind of able to assess their remaining flexibility under their capital structures. Uh, Nevertheless, uh, with AMC, Cinemark, and Marcus, uh, since March, they have all kind of followed a similar path. Um, They've each entered into covenant relief amendments under their bank debt. Uh, that suspended uh, secured or total leverage covenants through at least 2020 um, and replaced them with liquidity covenants. They've each issued new secured debt, uh, and Cinemark and Marcus have also issued convertible debt, and they each have um, very limited options remaining should they need to raise additional liquidity through the debt markets. Um, Next slide, please. Um, so to illustrate um, the degree to which AMC's credit agreement has changed uh, since uh, since March, um, I just wanted to give you uh, this slide. It's it's not meant to actually um, show anything since it's really hard to see what it says. But each different uh, – what's represented in this table is um, the company's ability to incur debt liens, restricted payments, investments, and prepayments under its credit agreement. Each color uh, represents a, a tightening of the terms of the credit agreement. Um, and with each uh, incremental tightening, it just added to the uh, to the previous restrictions didn't uh, didn't rate, terminate them and impose new ones. so as you can see there there, there are a number of colors uh, in the chart, and it just shows that since march the the credit agreement has gone through uh, four rounds of tightening. Um, And currently, AMC is is the most limited of all of the companies we're going to be talking about today in terms of accessing additional uh, liquidity. Uh, Next slide, please. Under AMC's covenant relief amendment, um, a six-times secured leverage ratio uh, has been suspended through the March 2021 quarter and replaced with a $50 million liquidity covenant. Um, while the covenant relief amendment also reduced the company's ability to access certain uh, dividend and investment baskets, the credit agreement was subsequently amended uh, in connection with the company's recent uh, exchange transaction to conform to the negative covenants, uh, which under the 2026 uh, first lien notes, which are significantly more restrictive. Um, based on July 20, uh, based on July 30, uh, June 30th financials, uh, we estimate that AMC has available $100 million of additional first lien debt and it can refinance um, $138 million of its unsecured subordinated debt. While it has some additional unsecured uh, debt capacity, given where its debt is currently trading, it's unlikely uh, it would be able to raise unsecured debt um, unless they paid an exorbitant uh, interest. Um, What's interesting here is, um, and this actually happened in Cinemark's uh, uh, amendment, which I'll get to in a bit, Um, in a July amendment to AMC's credit agreement, it did actually give the company some flexibility around investments in and asset sales of certain of its European assets Um, probably coincides with the improvement environment in Europe. Um, But given things have kind of turned worse there, um, it's not clear whether or not the company will use this flexibility to, uh, to raise additional uh, liquidity through uh, sales of its European assets. Uh, Next slide, please. Um, so at the end of March, uh, Marcus Corp., um, they they had a $220 million revolver, and they had $109 million of notes issued under note purchase agreements. Um, the debt was both unsecured, and it was not guaranteed. Um, at the time, uh, Marcus was not restricted from incurring any unsecured debt, um, can can incur secured debt up to 20, 20% of capitalization, uh, pretty much had no restrictions on its ability to pay dividends, uh, make investments or uh, make acquisitions. Uh, next slide, please. However, um, like the other two companies, Marcus had to uh, had to get a get covenant relief under its credit agreement. Um, so, although the debt to capitalization ratios under both its uh, revolver and its notes remains in effect, a three times fixed charge coverage ratio has been suspended uh, through the June twenty twenty two quarter. Um, and now, Marcus must meet both an, a minimum EBITDA and liquidity covenants, as well as comply with a maximum CAPEX covenant, which uh, does include unlimited, uh, quote unquote, social distancing capital expenditures. Um, interestingly, pursuant to an April amendment to the revolver, um, under which the, the company did uh, incur a new uh, $90 million one year uh, term A loan facility. Uh, all of Marcus's debt became guaranteed uh, by all of its uh, material domestic subsidiaries, um, and was secured by substantially all of their assets. Um, they, there is a collateral release mechanism under the documents, but that will only uh, occur uh, after three fiscal quarters have uh, have transpired since the term A loan was uh, repaid, and the company is able to meet a three and a half times total leverage test. Uh, next slide, please. Um, Until the collateral release date, um, Marcus uh, effectively has uh, no uh, secured debt capacity. They can incur uh, $5 million of non-collateral secured debt, um, and they can incur $50 million of of government relief uh, funds in in relation to either the CARES Act or another government program. Uh, they also have $15 million of unsecured debt capacity, uh, but given the company's state, kind of similar to AMC and Cinemark, uh, un- unsecured debt seems unrealistic at this time. Um, until the term A loans are repaid uh, or the fixed charge coverage ratio uh, is reinstated, uh, the company has lost its ability to pay dividends, um, it cannot purchase its notes in the open market, and its ability to make investments um, or sell assets are uh, have been significantly limited. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, so, as Mark mentioned, uh, Cinemark is in the uh, is in the best situation of the three. However, it, it too had to um, uh, obtain covenant relief uh, from its lenders, and um, under which a, a four and a quarter uh, secured leverage test has been suspended through the September twenty twenty one quarter. Um, actually, originally it had been through the March twenty twenty one quarter, but as things have gotten worse the company has had to extend the covenant relief period um and the the maintenance covenant was replaced by a hundred million dollar minimum liquidity requirement um during the suspension period uh cinemark cannot pay dividends it cannot make any material investments and it can it, it cannot uh purchase its 2022 notes although uh restrictions on the 2023 notes um are are not present at the time um, the Covenant Relief Amendment did not affect Cinemark's ability to incur debt. Um, and and as I was saying, similar to AMC's recent amendment, um, the company was was given the ability to make investments of up to $100 million in its non-U.S. subsidiaries. Uh, nevertheless, um, unlike AMC and Marcus, Cinemark does have a little flexibility remaining to raise liquidity, um, and its debt documents will allow it to incur about $472 million of additional secured debt based on June uh, June 30th financials. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, so, just a, a quick world, a, a quick word on Cineworld. Um because it's a it's a private company. We were not able to assess you know what flexibility it currently has under uh, its credit agreement. Um, we were able to review its 2018 facility, and w- although that did give the company uh, some flexibility. Um, the company did have, like the other ones, have ha- uh, had to uh, enter into a covenant relief amendment. Um, we believe in in around June. To the extent it is anything like the covenant relief amendments that AMC or uh, Marcus entered into, um, kind of laying out what what was permitted in in its credit agreement before the amendment um, is not is not worth it, just given. Um, the company's flexibility could essentially be uh, be could have been eliminated until the uh, covenant relief uh, period expires. Uh, so that's just a brief overview of the covenant conclusions. I will now turn it over to Sean.
2: Thanks, Peter. So I'll just provide a, a few thoughts on uh, three issues from a, a bankruptcy lens, looking at financing a case. Rent, and then finally, what a, a case timeline may look like. I'll refer to a, a number of current and prior cases. Uh, a few theaters, Cinemax, Studio Movie Grill, both have have filed uh, as a as a result of COVID, and IPIC, Pick, uh, chain that that filed last last summer, uh, and all three of these are some variation on the idea of uh, combining a, a luxury dining experience with a, a theater experience. And big distinction, these are all much, much smaller chains in terms of locations. Uh, so some distinctions, but some some common themes will, will come up. Uh, so starting with uh, just bankruptcy financing, big question is whether a company has assets to support secure debt, uh, any additional debt with all of the, uh, the liability management transactions this year. One of the more colorful phrases from bankruptcy court recently, the CRO of Studio Movie Grill in court, uh, you know, said it was a, a freaking miracle to be able to obtain a, a loan on a, a company with minimal hard assets and, and no owned real estate. One other sort of interesting pandemic angle that sticks out, Cineworld has said that it anticipates Regal will receive in excess of $200 million in cash by the second quarter of 2021 through certain of the CARES Act tax provisions. Uh, so, you know, that that begs the question, could you try to borrow against this uh, to pull it forward in time or, you know, some some reduced amount? In terms of structuring, you could see maybe a revolving facility or a multi-draw term loan, Cinemax. uh parent provided dip lending and sort of dribs and drabs over the months only as needed, as opposed to just a, you know, a single or, or dual draw loan. Uh, one web, not a, a theater company, but one of my favorite post-COVID dips. I was like a five, I want to say the company entered the case with something like a five draw term loan to support a sale process. You can add case controls of a varying degree to make sure things are you know are not just uh, lingering as well. And then, depending on your views of what what any any one of these companies would look like on the other side of restructuring, uh, I would hope to see some creative equity conversion features in future dips if needed, uh, taking backstopper commitment or other fees in the form of reorganized equity is, is pretty common as an example. Next slide. So lease obligations, obviously a a big deal is Mark mentioned before um, looking at even when these larger chains, a a high proportion of leased locations as opposed to to loan or uh, excuse me, owned locations. So this, Sort of begs begs the comparison with retailers that have large physical footprints. I'll jump around the slide a little bit. If you're just sort of following down bullet by bullet, the uh, the sort of big timing issue is from an, an assumption or a rejection of unexpired leases perspective. Uh, the debtors would have to to make those decisions within 210 days of the petition date. And the only way they can extend beyond that is with landlord consent Uh, payment during the case. You can delay obligations coming due in the first 60 days of the case until that 61st day um, or potentially longer with a more liberal reading of the relevant section of the bankruptcy code in Pier 1 the uh, the judge found that the uh, the idea that you need to perform the obligations quote timely, which is is generally been viewed as you know this is a great protection for landlords you get you get timely paid once you're two months into the case. Uh, in the context of, of Pier peer one, it was unclear whether the the company would liquidate or pursue a a going concern reorganization in sort of the early days of COVID, the court found that the broad equitable powers in Section 105 gave the the bankruptcy court the ability to approve the, the debtors to continue to retain possession of their various store locations while declining to pay rent. And he said that timely perform could be, uh, you know, a little bit more liberally interpreted. If, a, you, you know, he posited to the landlords, if a debtor fails to comply with this section of the bankruptcy code, okay, the landlord just receives an administrative claim, which doesn't need to be paid necessarily until a plan is confirmed, uh, which is, is, is a pretty, pretty liberal reading. Uh, in the Cinemax case, discussing payments of, or adequate protection for landlords. A judge in the Southern District of Florida, Pier 1 was an Eastern District of Virginia case, popular for retailers over the last several years. In the Southern District of Florida in Simex, a judge held, hewed a little bit more closely to what, you know, seems like a, uh, a more cut and dried reading of the, the statute and explained that you know, she was, she was comfortable with not giving landlords more in the early days of the case because of that 60 day period, that, you know, sort of initial rent abatement period permitted by the code for cause, Uh, you know, after that you'd you'd be, you'd be getting paid. So that's two, two different views. Uh, This, this also raises, there have been a number of these quote mothball Motions, primarily by retail debtors, also seen it now in Cinemax and Studio Movie Grill, to delay the the payment of rent, other obligations. What's interesting, as Mark and Krishan noted, certain of the, the movie theaters have, have already attained a pretty high level of concessions or reached some sort of agreement with their landlords. In these mothball motions, what typically happens is they're are adequate protection payments for landlords, meaning that the the debtors will sort of take care of insurance, tax, utilities associated with the lease. Uh, and so, to, to the extent that AMC or Cineworld haven't even been paying those sort of uh, you know smaller amounts. The, when they file, their their cash rent burden could actually increase from where it currently is, uh, which is something you, you wouldn't normally expect to see. And then just a couple additional notes. One, one COVID wrinkle to the assumption and rejection question is you're not just looking at you know, pre-pandemic, you you might do an analysis of your, all of your store locations and say, okay, these ones are underperforming. We'll you know we'll decide to reject them, and you can still do that. But then you just have the blanket issue of, okay, at zero or de minimis revenue, your best pre-COVID location is is just the same as as your worst. Um, there's a cap on rejection damages that we we may get into depending on time. And then just a couple of quick notes, sort of case-specific thing. Uh, critical vendor payments. Prior cases have included studios or movie distributors. Obviously, you need, you need to uh, have people willing to sell you products that you can then um, go on and, and sell yourself. And then just the point that Cineworld, uh, sort of in several suits uh, related to Regal acquisition, and uh, they were sued by Cineplex for failing to complete an acquisition earlier this year. Those litigation claims uh, could be flushed out in a in a bankruptcy. Uh, next slide, please. So, just going back to the the general point that from a the perspective of a case where leases are, are are a large issue the 210 day limitation on the assumption and rejection decision set by the bankruptcy code sort of sets a, a de facto outside date the cinemex case if it's if its proposed plan is confirmed next month will have will have snuck in just under the wire I uh, ipic which was a, a pre covid case uh, took only 3 months but that was slightly distinguishable on the, on the facts, obviously no COVID involved. And then it was just kind of a a rushed, you know, we need to file and and run a two month sale process. So that's, that's a little different. Um, But it does sort of the, having this sort of outside date does looking backwards sort of set or incentivize a company to delay filing as long as possible. I mean, other reasons to delay filing as well, but uh, you can't, if leases are going to be an issue, you you can't just sort of stay indefinitely in bankruptcy to, to wait and see how demand recovers, uh, unlike, say, a company like Hertz could. In um, that, I think will just about do it. Uh, next slide, please. the The next three slides are are just quick summaries with further detail on several of the, the theater cases I mentioned. Uh, this slide is Cinemax. Next slide is Studio Movie Grill, which just filed recently. One, one interesting thing to watch for, Studio Movie Grill, they filed a, a rent abatement motion, but they have also sought not just to, to be excused from paying rent for the first 60 days, but to be excused indefinitely where there are government restrictions that would not permit them to open up theater your location. So we'll, uh, we'll see how that one plays out. And then moving on to the next slide, please. IPIC is just a very short sale case, uh, small chain, that filed last year, uh, but a, again, an example of critical, and vendor, critical vendors, including movie distributors. Uh, and that is all for me.
3: Thanks, Sean. So that concludes this live portion of our presentation. As a reminder, we will make the slides available, plus the replay of the call later today. One clarifying point, world is a public company, but it's agreements related to the covenant discussion were not filed publicly. Uh, so we will now switch over to Q and A. So let's see what questions have come in so far. Looks like uh, this one is for Krishan. So Krishan, uh, AMC had said that uh, they're, uh, they're you know they would burn about a hundred million dollars in cash. But then when they reported July and August, the cash burn was higher, and they said the third quarter, uh, while theaters were open, cash burn would be higher. So why is cash burn higher with theaters open?
4: Yeah, thanks, Mark. Um... The general answer is, is just low attendance. And yeah, looking at AMC specifically, um, they said after reopening theaters in the U S um, low attendance levels, particularly following the release of Tenet, um, were driven by, um, you know, the delay of scheduled movie releases, um, and the remaining closure of theaters in certain Metro areas, which they've pointed out, um, like New York and Los Angeles, for example, where some of their more profitable theaters are located and haven't been able to reopen yet. Um, And just as a reference point, AMC said um, in late September, they said that in order to avoid needing additional liquidity, they would need to achieve attendance approaching approximately three quarters of normalized levels. and since the reopening, they said uh, that same theater attendance is down eighty-five percent year over year in the U.S. and down seventy-four percent year over year internationally. Um, yeah, yeah. So that's the the short answer is is, is essentially low attendance.
3: Thanks. Uh, so next one, let's go to Peter. Um, Peter, once the covenant relief period ends, won't the companies regain some flexibility?
5: Um, So they will. um, Under uh, Cinemark and under Marcus's, yes, they have a clear, uh, defined point in which the covenant relief amendments um, uh, terminate and and then the covenants kind of uh, are reinstated. Under AMCs, um, they, you know, since March, they've issued uh, uh, firstly notes due 2025 and 2026. Uh, the covenants under those notes are were a lot more restrictive than what was under the credit agreement, and the credit agreement was amended um, not only to add those more restrictive covenants, um, but to say those covenants are in effect um, as long as either the 2025 or 2026 notes are outstanding. Um, the 2025 and 2026 notes are, are subject to to typical uh, redemption provisions, including a make-hole, equity callback, and uh, Uh, gradually declining call schedule so even when amc's covenant relief amendment uh expires it will still be subject to those more restrictive covenants under the 2025 and 2026 notes unless the company redeems them which would be uh very expensive
3: thanks peter uh so sean um there's a question on the Cineworld-Cineplex uh, lawsuit related to the uh, terminated merger. Um, any any thoughts on this and how it plays out pre or post bankruptcy?
2: Yeah, sure, Mark. So just for anyone who's maybe not familiar with the lawsuit, I, I think I mentioned it really briefly before. Cineworld had an agreement to acquire Cineplex I think that was signed in November, or December of last year, and then uh, sent a, a letter of termination, or you know, decided not to uh, close the deal. In I want to say June of this year, Cineplex sued in Canada. Um, I'll say it's it's more difficult to find court filings in Canada than than the U.S., which isn't great. Um, but yeah, it's it's a it's a little bit outside my wheelhouse. You know, the the typical response would just be, okay, you know, there's no there's there's not even a, you know, a result yet. So if you were to, if you were in a bankruptcy context in the U.S. suit in the U.S. Um, or I guess if, if you filed in both countries and then received comedy from one country to the other to say, Hey, yes, you know, let's, let's pause this suit to allow the restructuring to go forward. That's just a, a classic unsecured claim added to the claims pool. Um, from a, a substance perspective, it's a, it's a merger termination suit. Again, a little bit outside of my wheelhouse, uh, but just sort of reading yeah. I mean, each, each side sort of has its own arguments. I, I think one thing that stuck out to me is that looked pretty good for Cineplex is there was a, a fairly ironclad material adverse effect provision that wouldn't let Cineworld get out, but Cineworld makes just a, a host of of arguments uh, about Cineplex not having maintained the business in the ordinary course. It just, it gets, you know, it's, it's all pretty granular factual stuff that, Uh, I I think makes it something that's less easy to handicap out of court. Maybe it matters in court. I'll, I'll go ahead and say doesn't particularly matter.
3: Great. So I'll, I'll take the next one, which is on Cinemark, uh, talking about their liquidity, um, saying that they, uh, like to keep uh, about five hundred million dollars in cash on the balance sheet. Um I'm not sure about you know that exact number, uh, what they want to keep um on their their balance sheet, um, whether it's in cash registers or um, what the purpose of you know all the cash is or what minimum cash levels are. But I would say that um, that actual cash balance and what they can move around the organization might be lower than the, uh, the headline number. In uh, As of December 31st, Cinemark reported cash of $303 million at its uh, subsidiary non-guarantors out of the total consolidated cash balance at that time of $488 million. So a considerable amount was at their subsidiary non-guarantors. Um, they don't report uh, guaranteeing statements in its quarterly reports, so I'm not sure how that has changed uh, since then or their flexibility to move um, cash around. Separately, they also reported $124 million of cash, an unrestricted group. Uh, so it's, it's unclear, you know, which of the entities are in their unrestricted group. So something to keep in mind in terms of uh, liquidity and whether or not all their liquidity is, is accessible. Uh, so the next one, uh, let's go back to Peter. Peter. Um, can uh, companies do non-pro-rata deals uh, or how do you see that playing out?
5: Oh, um, So I'm assuming that question is um, is asking whether these companies could do uh, a, a CERTA or a BoardMark or Trimark-type uh, super priority up-tier exchange. Um, so before all of these, uh, before COVID, I would have said um, Cinemark and, a- and AMC most likely could have. Now it's doubtful. And, and the reason is because um, they now both have uh, firstly notes in the structure too. Um, And and so that kind of complicates things In sort of trimark and board riders, it was a bank debt only structure. So they only needed to negotiate with uh, a majority of their term loan lenders here. They would need to go to a majority of their, of their bank debt lenders. And um, I, I believe it's 66 and two thirds percent of note holders under under uh, both Cinemark and uh, AMC's uh, notes, uh, um, under under Marcus, the debt would presumably be unsecured. Uh, let's just assume uh, covenant relief amendments go away. Um, th- there's no secured debt there, so any any secured debt w- would prime the unsecured. And right now, because they're both secured, it, they'd run into the same problem. So it gets complicated when uh, these companies need to go to uh, different groups of of uh, of note holders or lenders to try to negotiate these up-tier exchanges. So um, I doubt it would work. Now, they're both allowed to uh, purchase their term loans in the open market. And, of course, there are never any restrictions on open market purchase of the notes. So that wouldn't be an issue. The issue would just be trying to get enough of the of the lenders and the note holders to agree uh, to do a, an up-tier transaction. And, and with the notes, it requires a higher hurdle than a majority of lenders.
3: Great, thank you. Uh, let's go back to Sean's couple of questions on rent. I'll just uh, combine them into a couple of parts. Um, one, the first on deferred rent, uh, catch up payments. Um, so we had mentioned earlier that in a world uh, out of 130 million, um, or out of 150 million in quarterly rent, 130 million, uh, they didn't pay 100 million of that was deferred. How would that be treated in a bankruptcy? And then on the cash portion of rent, a couple of questions. Um, If you could explain how cash rent actually could increase in a a bankruptcy.
2: Yeah, sure, Mark. So the point about cash rent potentially going up as a result of a, a bankruptcy is just that in exchange for the court granting recent, uh, retail, mostly retail debtors and in a a few theaters In, in exchange for granting the debtors, the ability to defer rent payments, they've often required the debtors to still make sort of, you know, the, the incidental maintenance costs of maintaining a property, um, so, again, I think insurance taxes are, are sort of examples that come up. So it's, it's just the, the idea that if you're, if you're not paying those amounts right now, if you have a more favorable, uh, you know, deferral agreement with your landlord, once you're in court, if you kind of hew to that pattern and the judge says, yes, all right, you know, listen, I'll let you not make the bulk of these payments, but you still need to pay X, Y, and Z sort of in incidentals as I'm, as I'm phrasing it, um, depending on that magnitude, you could, and unfortunately I, I don't really have numbers around this, but you know, you could see an increase in, in cash going out the door to just kind of take care of those very specific line items. Um, I think another element of the question was how, uh, you know, how claims would be treated, uh, or I guess, yeah, just getting, getting um, if you if you assume a lease, you have to quote cure, which bumps up the priority of claims because you, you need to uh, make any need to catch up on any unpaid payments. Uh, if you reject, then the landlord, will have a rejection damages claim. Uh, they can they can assert a claim for any unpaid pre-petition. I, w- I would say that if you're looking at rent issues, just think about the time in which the claim arises. Pre-petition versus post-petition. Um, post-petition after, after 60 days and pre-rejection would be administrative expense. Uh, the cure has the, has the effect of making things administrative expense, um, rejection damages. You, there's a cap of, I think it's the the greater of the payments that would be due under the next year under the lease, or I think it's capped at three years, but it's like, or 15% of the remaining lease term. Um, so you just kind of, you know, partition the claims off by when they, when they arise and, and go through the, go through the the footwork. Um, and then the, the point is you, you could still, of course, you can always negotiate with landlords. I mean, obviously the, the companies, you know, have, have already done that and have had what appears to be pretty, pretty good success in getting a lot of landlords on board. Um, you can, you can, of course still do the same in chapter 11. It's just that the bankruptcy code puts up these landlord friendly bumpers, that you know, kind of change the the dynamic a little bit.
3: Thanks, Sean. Um, so I'll, I'll take one on just general industry changes in the business. Are there any talks for these chains to be thinking to drive traffic experience to more digital platforms like a channel on cable or say an experience through a smart TV application? Uh, so come, throughout the whole pandemic, uh, companies have been trying different things. Um, and testing out different solutions. Um, in terms of movie theaters working with the studios, there's an agreement between AMC and Universal to shorten uh, the window. The other movie theaters uh, were you know, against this and, and said it wouldn't work. You've seen studios try to go direct uh, to the home with um, certain releases. Um, charging just more, uh, you know, for a twenty dollars rental instead of a, a four or five dollars rental, or Disney doing their premium app. Um, so there's certainly things that that are um, that that companies are trying, but I think it's pretty telling that um, the um, that the studios have delayed all of their major releases um, instead of they they have the systems in place, the platforms in place, but they they still choose to. Delay it to next year, which affects their return metrics. Um, but think that's better than going um, direct to the home. Also, that um, their um, these companies also have JVs and uh, equity interest in certain um, other businesses. That uh, you know, for the instance, the advertising business, National Cinemedia, um, and some others related to. Um, to distribution where they make other money as well so they're really tied to um, to the movie business but uh, we'll see how um, how things how things play out uh, so that is um, that is all the time that uh, we have today uh, for, for questions remember a replay with slides will be available on the reorg media page uh, later today for reorg clients uh, thank you for joining us today
1: Thanks again for listening to this Reorg weekly review. As always, you can find every one of our podcasts on the Reorg site media page, iTunes, and SoundCloud. As always, we hope you and your families are healthy and safe.